only imagine. Oh, praise team and Brother Scott did a wonderful job setting up our message tonight. Uh, truly, we can only imagine what that, that time will be like. We're going to try to imagine a little bit of that tonight based off of what we know from Scripture. But, uh, man, it's such a beautiful, beautiful song. And thanks for, for all that you've done to prepare for our study of God's Word tonight. Uh, we're going to finish up this week and next week the study that Brother John started a while back of Revelation. And... Uh, to have the great privilege of uh, picking right up in ver- uh, chapter 21. Like I said this morning, it's kind of the good stuff. Brother John has brought us through all the tribulation and all the horror that is going to be experienced at that point. Um, Satan has been bound, and the millennial reign of Christ has, has came and went. He preached on that last time, the thousand-year reign of Christ where he reigns here on earth from Jerusalem, and the governments of this earth rest on his shoulders in that righteous rule, and so many of the promises to Israel from the Old Testament are able to be fulfilled during that time. And then we saw Satan loose for a brief time, for a brief rebellion that was quickly put down by, by God's word, and, and Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet and all those who have rebelled against God, were cast into the lake of fire. And it brings us to chapter 21, where we start looking at what comes next. What, what does eternity, the long eternity, look like? And uh, I don't know about you, but it really gets me excited. I, I'm not sure if I'll be able to convey my excitement here tonight, uh, but just know that my heart is truly excited about that eternal state. Do you think about heaven much? in your daily lives? Is heaven something that's normally a part of your thought process, thought life? I hope it is. Uh, What we'll see tonight is that uh, there's a heaven now where believers go to, and uh, they're there in the presence of God, and and they're fellow believers throughout the centuries, but there's also a, a new age to come that we'll look at here in verse 21, the eternal state that will be ushered in as we uh, leave the millennial kingdom and go into that eternal state of being. I think that as we, think of hum- uh, as we humans think of heaven, sometimes our ideas are polluted by culture, polluted by our own limited uh, perception. We can barely see right, what's right in front of us, let alone 10 million years ahead of us, right? Our our finite minds just have trouble wrapping around that kind of thought. And certainly uh, those ideas and images of of heaven are confused and uh, corrupted, if you will, from tradition and culture. Also, uh, sometimes we, as Christians, can be guilty of this too, certainly the lost, but Christians can be guilty of loving this world too much, that we're having too much fun here, that it's just hard to imagine leaving all this behind. And I know I say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek because when we go through the hard times, which are, which are ever-present in our life, I know that we want this life to be over. But if we're honest with ourselves, there's a lot of enjoyment here in this life that, that some cling to uh, most especially. Even when, we, when it comes down to family. Perhaps we're, we're talking about that doorway of death that uh, some of us have... Uh, watch our loved ones go through. Some of us may be very close to walking through that door. 
perhaps some of us that are, are young may go through that door of death today. We never know. And the thought of leaving family behind and saying goodbye to our human relationships can, can be difficult. And perhaps stuff like that clouds our vision sometimes of, of heaven, what it's really going to be like. Um, sometimes we have it backwards. Sometimes we, we say that it's the afterlife, right? How many times have you heard the afterlife or perhaps you've described heaven as the afterlife yourself? Does, does that make sense? Should we describe heaven as the afterlife? As in, this is the life. This is it. And that's something that just comes after. No. It's completely backwards. This life that we live is certainly not all there is. And, and that's what gives us tremendous joy that, that this is not it. <laughs> I mean, listen, this world has a lot of enjoyment. There, there's, there's no mistaking that. A lot of righteous, wholesome enjoyment that God created. And, of course, we understand that the, the way God created this earth has been corrupted by sin, and it's severely handicapped. But, nevertheless, God uh, did create a world that is full of enjoyment, and there's nothing wrong with that. The danger, of course, is walking too far on one side or the other of this narrow path of Christianity. Sometimes we can love the enjoyment of the world too much, and it it lowers our eyesight from heaven down to the things of this world, which is, is wrong. And we become less heavenly-minded. We're not focusing on the things that are above like, like God intends for us. That's certainly a danger. But sometimes we go all, all the way to the, the very opposite and say there's nothing in this world that uh, we want to have any part of. We don't want to have any kind of continuity between this life and the next. That everything... In this earth, this flesh, all of creation is somehow corrupt, and we must be completely separated from it from all of eternity to be happy. And that's just not the way it's intended. Uh, God created the heavens and the earth back in the garden in Genesis 1, and he said that they were good. It was good. And it was only after sin came in and corrupted that things changed. All right? So creation itself is not inherently bad. It's only the sin and its effects that have corrupted. And that's what we're wanting to flee from. That's what we want to, to take our focus off of, is the sinful idolatry, things that t- take our focus off of God from this world and focus on, on Him. Um, you know, as we go down that line of thinking, this, this idea that the afterlife, as it's sometimes called, and it's not rightly called, the life to come, is completely devoid of everything we know. So that we do have those fanciful, uh, cultural images of a bunch of people sitting around on clouds, playing harps, and that sort of thing, because we can't imagine anything different, right? If, if it's completely opposite than everything we know here, the only thing left is a ethereal, wispy land that we're sitting around singing songs for all of eternity. That's just not the case. That's not the way God described it through his, his revelation. Um, perhaps that's the very reason why sometimes, sometimes we, we're just not as excited as we should be when it comes down to heaven. Listen, as Christians, yes, we absolutely long for that time where we see Jesus face to face. Okay? That's a part of our DNA as Christians. We, we want to have our faith become sight. 
and be in the very presence of the Lord and worship Him face-to-face and be reunited with our brothers and sisters and, and the brethren throughout the centuries that have gone on before us, that is absolutely one of the great hopes that we have for eternity. But <clears throat> if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes that idea alone in our temporal thinking tends to discourage us a little bit. Think, okay, well, that's good, but after a year or 10 years or 50 years, 5 million years, are we just somehow sort of locked into this eternal, long church service, right? And we know that we love coming together with our uh, brothers and sisters here and worshiping the Lord, and rightfully so, but somehow, from our human standpoint, an eternity of the same thing, of this 10 million year eternal worship service, I think sometimes takes our focus off of our excitement. It it robs us of some of the excitement. And I think God has so much more, so much more planned for his creation and for us to enjoy his creation than what we could ever imagine. Um, It's as if you went to a, a fish, okay? Now, you have to pretend like you could talk to a fish, I know. And you told this fish that, listen, life is going to be so much better. We're going to, you're, you're going to be removed from this world that you know. You're not going to be swimming around in water anymore. And you're not going to be able to breathe water. It's going to be great. You're going to be up on this, this place that is devoid of water, and it's, it's dry, and the sun is bright and shining, and, and you're not going to have the beautiful coral reefs that you're, that you're swimming around in. But trust me, it's going to be great. You think that fish just would possibly miss the point. I feel like sometimes we're, we're a fish out of water when we think of heaven. So uh, sit back and let's explore what God shows us in Revelation 21 of, of this eternal state. We're not completely sure what it's going to be like. Uh, we are not God. We, we will not have the full revelation uh, potentially forever. We'll never be God himself. But we can have uh, enough knowledge that we need on this earth to give us encouragement and to help us keep our mind focused on the things we're above. And there are a few things that we can know. And sort of the central theme of this lesson tonight is verse 5, 21 verse 5. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. All right? That's our central theme tonight as we study this. He's making all things new. New. It really sums up what we're talking about tonight. So, so first of all, we're going to start with uh, the new heaven and new earth themselves. Now, hopefully you have the bulletin from this morning because there is an outline in there, but even if you don't, we will have some slides up here on the screen. New heaven and new earth, first one. And I'm going to do my best just to walk us through this text tonight. Um, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. All right, so first of all, we see this new heaven and new earth. We have to understand that this world, the creation as we know it, and the heavens above will be completely gone. They'll be completely replaced. All the sin uh, and its, its corruption that has had its effect on the earth and the atmosphere above will be completely wiped away and that will be replaced or renewed. All the creation is recreated. We see this in verse 1. And again, it's, it's a little bit hard to wrap our heads around this, but 
we know from Scripture that all of creation is groaning. It's desperately waiting to come back, or Jesus to come back and restore it, right? We see this in Romans 8, verse 19 through 22. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption and to the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. So it's not just us that are longing to be recreated and resurrected. It's it's creation itself. And the Bible says that one day that God will completely remake and recreate the heavens and the earth. Now we know it will not be destroyed by by water because God promised it after the flood that the world would not be destroyed again by water. Uh, but we will see a massive destruction during the tribulation and uh, a partial renewal during the millennial kingdom. But after the thousand years, God will completely renew and recreate heavens and the earth. We see in Second Peter 3, verse 10 through 13, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now you see how... uh, this expectation of new heavens and the earth is tied with our holy conduct and godliness. That is something to remember as we're studying Revelations and studying the second coming. We always need to tie it, that future, to our present and, and let it affect our conduct and, and conformity to Jesus Christ. But here in Second Peter, we see that there's an expectation of the new heavens and new earth. And this is not a New Testament idea. This has uh, been around for, for centuries. Back in the Old Testament, was a promise to Israel made in Isaiah 65, verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. Okay? So new heavens and new earth. Um, There's a continuity between the old and the new. All right? Excuse me. There's a continuity. It's the same continuity that exists between our bodies now and our resurrected bodies, right? That we, we know that, that when we are, are glorified and we receive our resurrected bodies, that, that they will be completely free of sin, they'll be completely renewed, they'll be like Christ, and yet they'll still be recognizable. Uh, they'll, they'll still have a continuity between this life and the next. It's like a, an acorn to the oak tree. But it's the same way with the new heavens and the new earth. It'll be completely renewed and restored, and it'll be different in, in ways that we can't even imagine, and yet there's still a continuity there. There's a, there's a familiarity there. We are created a certain way and with certain expectations, and, and the world that we will live in, the heaven that we will live in at that point, will be familiar to us. Uh, perhaps it, it is uh, interesting to think of this recreation of the, the universe as a sort of resurrection of creation. 
because it's very similar. So what do we know about this new heaven and new earth? What does Scripture tell us? And really, there's, there's not a whole lot of description. We'll, we'll see a lot of description about the new Jerusalem here in a few, few moments. But what do we know about this? Verse 1 does tell us that there will no longer be any sea. So we know that the church will be radically different just from that standpoint because the earth now is, what, three-quarters covered with water? And so we'll have a tremendous uh, increase in the amount of land that can be occupied, more space. But more importantly, the new earth will mean a new relationship with God. New relationship. Uh, Right now, when we think about going to heaven, when we leave this earth, we know that, that being absent from the body is being present with the Lord. That's a, that's a comfort for us. It's a promise. And um, those that have gone on before us are there in heaven with God and Jesus. But it's that heaven that we think of is a temporary place because it's a place that we exist in a soul state. We those that have gone on before, we who die before uh, the millennial kingdom, we, we have not yet been reunited with our resurrected bodies. That does not happen until we enter into the millennial kingdom and help rule and reign with Jesus Christ here on earth. So it's a temporary place. Um, we see here in Revelation 21, though, that God himself literally comes down to dwell with his creation on earth. We know that heaven is, a, is God's dwelling place, right? And so when God comes down to dwell among his people, literally on the new earth, we'll see heaven on earth. Uh, verse 2, and I saw the holy city. Well, we'll skip verse 2. We'll come back to it here in a minute. Um, and, I, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. And he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. God dwells among men. Literally, it says God tabernacles among men. And the only way he can even do that is because at that point in time, Sin has been completely removed, and, and Satan and the Antichrist, the false prophet, all the unbelievers have been cast into the lake of fire, and only, only believers enter into this, this new earth, this, new, this heaven. And, um, man, just think about that. Think about God himself, the creator of the universe, the king, dwelling among his creation, because Sin no longer separates us. Again, for those that have gone on before us, now they they enjoy that privilege right now. But after the millennial kingdom, when we are reunited with our bodies and we are resurrected, we we will exist in those resurrected bodies with God here on earth. It's exciting. No more sin and its sting. It says here in our verse that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more sadness. All those, those things that we hope for, we, we long for, that we know about heaven will become a reality. There will be no more death. Sin and its consequences brings on death. 
and death will be no more. There'll be no more depression. There'll be no more disappointment, no more pain. All things will be made new, it says. That brings us to the next point, the, this new eternal state of being. Okay, look at verse, verse 5. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. And then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and liars, their part will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. This new eternal state of being. Verse 6, it says, it is done. Does that sound familiar? Uh, does that, is it reminiscent of the words of Jesus Christ on the cross when he said, it is finished? I think there should be a, a, a tie between those two because when Jesus said it is finished on the cross, he was talking about God's redemptive plan. Everything that would, was needed for God redeeming humanity was finished, was completed with Christ's sacrifice there on the cross. And yet here, at the end of the age, God said it is done because his plan for creation itself is completed. We see this consummation of the age, the end of the world, as it was known before. And in this passage, we see an eternal truth here. We see the eternal truth that there are only two types of people. There are only two kinds of people left. Well, there's ever, in in all of history, ever two types of people, but... Uh, it's certainly magnified here. Those that are believers and those that are unbelievers. We have those that overcome, those that trust, those that believe, those that have confessed Jesus as Lord, enter into an eternal state of life, an abundant life, that peaceful existence with God and, and enjoying his creation forever and ever. They enter into life, the spring of life. It's an inheritance but we also see in verse 8 that those that reject God, those unbelievers, for them there is an eternal state of death. List out those cowardly and unbelieving and abominable murderers, immoral persons, sorcerers, idolaters, and, and liars. Liars is on the same list. It just shows you that it, it doesn't matter what the sin is. The sin, one sin, is enough to eternally separate us from our Heavenly Father. So don't miss that truth that there is an eternal state for all of us, but for some it's, it's death and the eternal lake of fire. And for, for us, those of us who are believers, it's eternal life. And I, I suppose it needs to be mentioned here as well that the same word is used. When we, when we look at Scripture, we see the, the descriptors of the eternal state of believers. That same eternal wording is used for those in the lake of fire. I know somehow, as, as Christians, we perhaps would wish that maybe there was an end to their punishment at some point. I think it's a thousand years enough, two thousand years, and perhaps that they would go off and, into annihilation. But it's not what the Word of God says. 
that there is an eternal, never-ending state of punishment for those who reject God because he is an eternal, infinite God. And that's what rebellion against him demands. Should give us incentive all the more to share the good news of Jesus Christ. All right, we also see in verse 9, the New Jerusalem. And again, this is the most description we have about this, this period, is this city of New Jerusalem. Uh, verse 9 says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, And he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and the gates had 12 angels, and names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Let's go ahead and stop there. So we see this new Jerusalem coming down, this, this bride this descending out of heaven. She is adorned for her husband. Now, Jesus said uh, before he left this earth, he said, did I go and prepare a place for you, right? It's very encouraging. It's a promise to us that he is preparing a place for all those who believe in him to go when we leave this life. And, and here we see this very place that he's describing, the New Jerusalem, right? There's the Jerusalem of the old, Back in the uh, Old New Testament, we see the Jerusalem in the millennial reign of Christ. And then we have this new Jerusalem, the city of God that will descend from heaven. It's the city that Abraham sought after. Hebrews 11.10, For Abraham was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. This is the new Jerusalem. This is the dwelling place of believers. This is where... Those that have gone on before us are, are now waiting. But at the end of all time, in the, in the eternal state, it will descend down to the new earth, and it will be the capital city of the new creation. It's important to note that all the descriptions of heaven that we see in the Bible that describe the pearly gates and the streets of gold, they are actually of the new Jerusalem here. And it will come down, and it will be planted here. So next we see the description of his beauty. And uh, we've already seen a a few verses of this, but I'll continue on in in verse 15. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with the rod, 1,500 miles, my Bible says, it's 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its wall, 72 yards, or... 144 cubits, according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, 
and sapphire and uh, chalcedony, emerald, sardonyx, sardius, chrysolite, beryl, topaz, uh, chrysoprase, jacinth, and amethyst. Got through that. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl. And the streets of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. So this chapter does give us great detail of New Jerusalem, more than any other aspect of the eternal state. And although the Apostle John, as he was writing this, perhaps had difficulty describing its beauty, uh, he did use the best human descriptors possible. And that's what we see here when he's describing all these uh, beautiful stones and and uh, how the city is adorned with the very glory of God. He said it's brilliant. It's brilliant. He says it has a high wall that uh, speaks to its, its power, the power of God, its protection, the security that's there. No one can penetrate it. And yet, at the same time, it also speaks of the gates it has, right? And what do gates imply? Gates imply that people are coming and going. And they're on all four sides so that people are coming and going from all different sides of the New Jerusalem. Implying also that we will not be confined to just those four walls. That we will be able to explore and, and uh, enjoy God's new creation. And as we read through that passage, I, I hope you picked up on all these twelves. As we read the Bible, I know that... Some uh, people are students in uh, numerology, and they, they like to study numbers, but you can't help but notice all the 12s or multiples of 12s here, correct? Um, these students of numerology often say that the number 12 is correlated with government or administration, okay? And uh, we've seen this throughout the Bible, uh, as in the, the multiples of 12, the 24 Thrones, or I'm sorry, the 20, yeah, 24 thrones around the altar. We also see the multiple 12 and the 144,000 that are mentioned in Revelation 14. And look here, we have the 12 gates. We have 12 angels that are guarding those gates. We have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel on those gates. We have uh, 12 stone, foundation stones with the names of the 12 apostles on those stones. 12 and 12 and 12 and 12. It just shows the, the perfection that, of God's design. And I also thought it was interesting studying this, that the construction of this city and the foundation and its walls, the gates, they're made up of both Old Testament and New Testament, the apostles and the tribes of Israel. Um, it's laid out in a cube form, right? The length and width are equal with its height. Now, some would say that perhaps it's a pyramid um, or even, if you can imagine, a, a metropolis okay, with tall skyscrapers where some of the taller skyscrapers in the middle are, are reaching that 12,000 stadia height and maybe some others aren't. But I, I think it is appropriate to, to view it just as the text puts it here as a cube because it is reminiscent of the shape of the temple and the Holy of Holies, in that, that cube form. And when we do, when we, when we examine it, and we, we also have to note the, the multiplier of 12,000, or 12, right, in the 12,000 stadia, by 12,000, and, and the 144 cubits, which is the thickness of the wall. And you're talking about a thick wall, 70-something yards. Imagine a football field. 
okay, and, and 12,000 stadia long and high. If you imagine the, this on a cube, we see that there's four on the bottom, right, and four 12,000s on the top, and then four 12,000s on the corner. So we literally have 12 12,000s on a cube. There's just another 12. Um, the wall was made of jasper, the city of like pure gold, like glass, and the foundation stones that we mentioned. And yes, here it is, uh, confirmation that there are pearly gates. So those images of St. Peter at the pearly gates are sort of true, right? It's not St. Peter, though. It's, it's angels, angels of God that are, are guarding the gates. Streets of gold like transparent glass. And you notice how the, the whole city is described with this transparency. And I really think it symbolizes the openness and uh, the relationship between each other and God that we'll be able to experience in that transparent city. Of course, God's light will, will illuminate the city itself and all creation. And let's continue on uh, reading that. Verse 21. Verse 22. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illuminated it. And its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. No need for light. Uh, the gates never close. It is, it is never nighttime. Just a, a glorious time there with, with the Lord. And we see that those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life freely enter and exit. And God can dwell among them there because there are no unrighteous there. Only those who are redeemed may enter the city. All others have been cast into the lake of fire. Um, it's hard to get our mind around that, I understand. In this new heaven and new earth, we're not told whether there's actually a sun or a moon. It, it certainly says that there's no need. There is no need for the sun and moon because God's light will illuminate the nations. But we don't know. We don't know if the new earth will be bigger than it is now. It is hard to imagine it, it, to get our human mind's eye around this uh, 1,500-mile-tall structure on the earth, right, as it, is, it exists today. But God's a big God. He can, he can do whatever he wants. And when he recreates the new heavens and the new earth, uh, there'll be a continuity, but it'll be much better than anything we can ever imagine. And uh, certainly we'll be dwelling with him. So that takes us to 22. We have to include a few verses into chapter 22 to just wrap up this description here. And as we do, I want to see that we, we have a new beginning. Okay, it's another new. God's making all things new. He's made the new Jerusalem, the, this new relationship with him, new heavens and new earth, this new eternal state of being, and now we have this new beginning. Verse 22. 
you know, back in Genesis 1, the, the Bible, God's revelation starts with what? In the beginning. In the beginning, God created. And then we have that, that phrase repeated in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. And I see that as tying not only Jesus Christ and his deity, but, but tying this in the beginning theme with Christ Jesus in the gospel and how Jesus came and he, he made possible this restoration and he made possible for the resurrection of us and, and the world through Christ. He undid what Adam and Eve did. He came to undo the stain and the curse of sin. But here in chapter 22, I think we see a new beginning. I think it's what it's picturing here, right? Paradise is restored. Paradise is restored. That paradise that, that we are very familiar with there in the Garden of Eden is restored. And we see some very familiar elements of the beginning here in the garden. Look at verse 1. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the midst of the street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of nations. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. So we see paradise restored. Um, a river of life. We, we see this flowing out of the throne. We, we see the tree of life, right? We haven't seen the tree of life since the Garden of Eden. And in the garden, because of sin, we were forbidden to take from it. Adam and Eve were cast out. And when God recreates his creation, when paradise is restored, we then again have access to the tree of life because sin will be no more and we will live forever. And I do want to point out the interesting twelves uh, here again. We, we see more twelves here in the twelve kinds of fruits and how it's producing fruit for every month of the year, and there's 12 months. So just another interesting FYI there. It says the leaves were for the healing of nations. And this has proven to be a little bit of a controversial statement over the years with scholars, but uh, I'm a simple person. <laughs> I don't see a, a, a big problem here. I, I think if you look at it more like what we would take for vitamins, Instead of medicine, there will be no sickness, okay? There, there's no need for healing from the standpoint that we're used to. But we do, we can receive life and sustenance and renewal like we would, say, from vitamins from this tree of life. So that the leaves are there for the healing of nations. We, we will experience life as we never experienced before, life eternal. Verse 3, the curse is removed. Again, hearkening back to the garden. Sin brought on death. The curse of not only humanity, but of the nations, is removed. There's a restoration of what Adam and Eve did. There's a fellowship with God like once existed back in the garden. Perfect fellowship. Uh, God's name will be on our foreheads. 
sign of ownership and allegiance. And we will serve him. It says his bond servants will serve him. So there will be activity. We, we will be doing stuff. Uh, I, I don't know how to describe what we'll be doing. I, I feel like, just like in the garden before sin, uh, Adam worked and it was good. And there will be many things that we'll be doing for God, serving God, serving others. But it will not be under the curse of sin. And we will enjoy it forever. We will reign forever and ever, verse, verse 5 says. Forever and ever. Remember the, the hymn, Amazing Grace. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing His praise than when we first begun. 10,000 years will be nothing. And again, I, I hope that by studying verse or chapter 21, we're, we're starting to get a little bit better picture of what that forever and ever will look like. It's not going to be sitting and playing harps forever and ever and ever. It's enjoying God's new heaven and new earth in his very present, enjoying creation like he always intended it, free from sin. So my hope is tonight that this future that we're describing here, or that we're imagining, that is beyond imagination, my hope is truly that this future will give you encouragement. I pray that you will be encouraged in the present by this future reality. Jesus has overcome the world, and the end is, is already set. God knew the end from the very beginning. And, of course, the eternal question is whether you confess Jesus Christ as Lord or not. I mean, that is the eternal question that will ring out. Will you be among the group that enjoys eternal life or those that are cast out into the lake of fire for eternal death? The Bible clearly says that it's appointed for a man once to die. Once. This is it. We have one chance at this life as we know it now before that eternal state. And we must confess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Repent. Do it now before it's too late. We do not know when we will enter into that, that next phase. But let's hope that we do so in Christ. It also says that as children of God that we do have an eternal home waiting for us, that Jesus is preparing for us even now. And that should be very encouraging too. You know, he, he spoke the world into existence just by words from his mouth, and yet Jesus said he went to prepare a place, and he's still preparing today. So can you imagine? Can you imagine? May we all keep our eyes lifted upward. Keep our eyes focused on the things that are above and not let this world and the the heartache and the trouble drag us down. And let that future tomorrow infuse your present with passion and purpose. Okay? That future expectation, that future hope that's guaranteed for us believers, let that infuse your present with passion and purpose. Passion to share the gospel Passion to share this good news and that hope for tomorrow with the people around you. Passion to serve God and to obey Him and to give Him honor and glory with our lives as our King. And passion and purpose to conform our lives as believers to His image, to that that glorious future, that one day that we will be resurrected, we will be restored, we will be made like Him. We know that's where we're going, so it's our responsibility now to glorify God by, by conforming our lives to that image. So please, church, 
uh, take these words to heart. God gave us this message in Revelation as an encouragement and a warning. And I hope that we all heed this warning tonight and we are encouraged by this message so that we give him honor and glory. And I look forward to the time where we're all together in that eternal state. And I, I truly do hope that each one of us in this room are there. I hope nobody here is deceiving themselves. That's between you and God. But my prayer is that you live your life transparent to God, before the face of God. Confess your sin, trust him, repent. And uh, that way we'll be, we'll be together serving him forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we do look forward to that time where you make all things new. Uh, retired sin, not only in our own lives, but just the, the death and the sadness, the separation that it, it brings here on earth. Or we, without Jesus, we have no hope. And this world would be enough to crush us. But we, we do take comfort in the fact that you've overcome the world. And it's a hope that's not based on speculation or or wishing that it'll happen, but it's a confident hope knowing that you've told us what's going to happen. We take great comfort in that. But I I do pray that this knowledge will give us passion and purpose here in the now. And we pray that we will live lives that will give you glory and that we will hasten the day of your coming by conforming our lives to your image and telling each and every person we encounter, the good news of Jesus Christ, so that they may enter into that eternal rest, eternal life with us as well. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.